0: Skin cancer is the most common cancer in the United States. Current estimates are that one in five Americans will develop skin cancer in their lifetime. Melanoma is the most concerning skin cancer that we are, as dermatologists are keenly on the lookout for. Having completed a cutaneous oncology fellowship at Boston University Medical Center, Through the Department of Dermatology, I am particularly interested in better understanding the molecular mechanisms behind melanoma, the advancements in diagnostics and medical intervention that we can all use to better treat patients. Today, I have invited Dr. David Fisher, who is internationally known as a researcher, clinician, and academic on melanoma. Dr. Fisher serves as the chief of the Mass Massachusetts General Hospital Department of Dermatology at Harvard Medical School in Boston, as well as the director of both Mass General Hospital's Cutaneous Biology Research Center and the Melanoma Center. Previously, Dr. Fisher had directed the melanoma program at the Dana Farber Cancer Institute. He also recently served as president of the Society for Melanoma Research, the largest international society dedicated to the study of melanoma. His contributions to understanding and treating skin cancer have been immense to the field of dermatology. It is a pleasure to have you on the Derm Club podcast today, Dr. Fisher. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So this is going to be quite a high-level discussion and sophisticated. You've really contributed amazing things to this field, and this is going to be very much a granular discussion about the discoveries you've made. I do want to begin by first asking you, how does UV radiation cause melanoma?
1: So I think um, we have to recognize a, a few key features of UV radiation. So ultraviolet radiation is part of the uh, electromagnetic radiation spectrum of, of what is emitted by sun. Um, it, is, uh, it is dangerous by interacting with DNA directly. So the portion of the UV spectrum called the UVB region directly interacts with with DNA. It would do this with DNA if you had it dissolved in water. It would still mutate the DNA. It would have effects on the structure of the DNA. Um, And so the, the simplest answer to your question is that UV has the capacity to interact chemically or physically with DNA and alter the sequence of nucleotides resulting in mutations, Um, and this is particularly important in our skin because UV has limited penetration capacity. Therefore, the skin receives the brunt, so to speak, Hmm. of of ultraviolet radiation, Um, and different cells in the skin have a different capacity of dealing with it. So the majority of cells near the surface, the keratinocytes, mostly die in response. They die very, very easily, and that's a good thing because if their DNA gets injured and they die, those cells cannot become cancerous. Melanocytes, the pigment cells on the other hand, when they get injured by UV radiation and they receive mutations, they don't die. If they died, the second day we would go out in the sun, we would all have lost our melanocytes and we would have something like vitiligo, the condition where melanocytes have died. But in order, presumably during evolution, to protect us in an ongoing way, Um, our melanocytes don't die very easily. In fact, they're among the most difficult cells. The normal melanocytes are among the most difficult cells to kill. Therefore, as they become irradiated by UV and as they accumulate mutations, they continue to live and, in fact, often provide melanin pigment that can protect us. But if they do become cancerous, which unfortunately they do all too often, and you take those cancer cells, those melanoma cells, and you sequence the genome in of the DNA within those cells, what you discover is one of the highest densities of mutations that are directly chemically attributable to that damage from ultraviolet radiation. You can see these cells lived in the sun and accumulated the mutations. So that is the, the most straightforward um, mechanism, I think, that 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 is generally considered to be how it is that UV radiation contributes to the formation of melanoma.
0: Okay. Very helpful to understand the basic and the background behind that. So I did read some of your research, which is really fascinating. And I read that red hair, um, well, as you know, many people know when they typically say when you're pale and you have which usually is associated with head, sometimes associated with a red, red heads are typically pale, um, I'll put it that way, um, that there's an elevated melanoma risk. Is this true and why is that? And is this independent of UV radiation, which we just discussed?
1: Yeah, so um, generally speaking, the risk of developing skin cancers in general and melanoma Follow a very similar parallel trajectory, which is that the the darker your skin, the more protected you are, and the lighter your skin, the higher the risk. And there are a number of features that go along with with these different categorizations. Um, you are more likely to burn sunburn if your skin is light. You're you're um, you're less likely to tan. You're more likely to have moles, nevi, on your skin as your skin is lighter and lighter. Um, so those, um, th- those attributes of, of skin pigmentation are, are very well-known, very commonplace, I think, and, and considered to be straightforward and simple. There is, in the case of melanin, a um, chemical understanding that I think these days is, is much more sophisticated than what we knew many years back, which is that the melanins, the pigments, broadly speaking, exist in two families. There are the the red-blonde melanins. Mm -hmm. They all have specific names that I'll spare you. We don't need to go into the chemistry too much. And then there are the brown-black pigments. So there are the red-blonde on one hand and brown-black. And these exist in reality in a gradient. You can have different proportions of red-blonde, brown-black, and that's why if you look at hair color, for example, um, there's a, essentially a smooth gradient of colors that can exist, not just red and not just black, but in fact, many shades in between. And in fact, that gradient probably exists for skin pigmentation as well. And again, as I mentioned before, and as I think is common knowledge, the, the pigmentation status in the skin does bear a general correlation with the risk of um, of, of forming most of the common forms of skin cancer, including melanoma, as well as non-melanoma forms of of skin cancer. In the case of melanoma, there is an intriguing nuance, which is from a public health perspective actually very important. And I'll first mention non-melanoma skin cancers. The two uh, most abundant ones are, called basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. Those two cancers actually are more common than melanoma, but fortunately, less lethal. Um, They are very, very common, but they tend to grow slowly. They tend to have plenty of time for surgical removal. Um, And usually they don't recur, or if they recur, they only recur right there on the skin, um, except for certain special circumstances where they can unfortunately behave more aggressively. Melanoma, in contrast, which is the third most common form of skin cancer, is intrinsically more aggressive. It is more likely to invade deeply and to spread metastasize to other parts of the body. And for that reason, has a a much more dangerous clinical course, although all of them need to be uh, attended to by a physician um, promptly and cared for very carefully. There is one striking difference in the clinical presentation of these diseases, that speaks to the issue you were asking about, about redheads and the risk of melanoma, red-haired individuals, which is that the non-melanoma common skin cancers tend to be restricted to the sun-exposed portions of our skin. Where the sun shines, that's where the injury occurs, that's where those mutations are inflicted, and that's where those cancers form. In the case of melanoma, on the other hand, while those certainly do occur in areas where there is sun damage, Melanoma, on the other hand, can occur where the sun is not shining. It can be under your clothing, for example, where there is much less UV exposure. And that suggests that there may be something different about the genesis of the melanoma and has led to studies. Sorry, if you have a question. No, I
0: just want to, I don't want to interrupt. Would
1: acral melanoma fall in that category? So acral um, mucosal ocular melanoma, eyes, the mucosal surfaces, for example, along the GI tract or GU tract or acral, which would be, for example, in the palms and soles. Great question. Um, So those are also examples of non-sun exposed or much less sun exposed sites, Um, but they actually tend to follow a a distinctive mechanism, a distinctive... um, so, So those are areas that are not pigmented darkly practically ever, but those are also much rarer forms of melanoma. Whereas in contrast to that, the risk in, let's say, a red-haired person, a very lightly skin pigmented person for developing melanoma, even in non-sun exposed areas, for example, under their trousers, for example, under you know places that are, are normally covered by clothing, is elevated as as it would be for other portions of their skin on the basis of their skin pigmentation. And the fact that that is an elevated risk, even in places that are not constantly being exposed to the sun suggests that there may be something else going on and did suggest a number of years ago that perhaps even something like the pigment itself might be contributing to instability of those melanocytes and perhaps contributing to melanoma formation. And a number of years ago, my lab, and then subsequently people have looked in in humans as well as animals um, and demonstrated that there is actually a chemical reactivity of the red blonde pigments, which may inflict a certain genomic DNA instability and actually contribute to the formation of these DNA mutations. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that could help explain why lightly pigmented or red-blonde pigmented melanocytes, even in areas that are are, are receiving very, very little sun exposure, um, have a risk, it's still even an elevated risk of melanoma formation. And, and one can see that happening in, um, in redheaded people in areas that are not necessarily UV exposed. But I do want to emphasize that there is even further evidence, and I don't think we've seen all of this come out yet, but there is a lot of research in the, in the field, Looking at whether that red blonde pigment may interact with UV radiation and even further amplify this risk, and it is very likely that that will be the case. And so, in fact, it's it's hard to have absolutely zero UV exposure. You know, at some point intermittently there may be a tiny little bit, um, but if one has a, a hypersensitive constitution, then there is a risk that melanoma can form in those areas as well. I would also point out, this speaks to the issue of sunscreen because what is sunscreen doing? Sunscreen is preventing UV from penetrating into the skin if it's working properly. Um, It is also preventing burning, but also tanning if people are able to tan. In a red haired person who cannot tan anyway, probably it's not going to do much except save, prevent the, the burning, and hopefully prevent those UV mutations from getting into the into the epidermis and into the melanocytes. But for people who could tan, one wonders whether the impact of using a sunscreen may be actually to skew their pigmentation more towards the red hair side of the spectrum. And we don't actually know for sure how safe that really is. I mean, obviously avoiding UV mutations is wonderful. So in that respect, it's great. And I would certainly say my bottom line is use sunscreen, no doubt about that. There is is no controversy on that. But from a scientific perspective, one wonders whether there will be further opportunities to improve protection against melanoma formation by considering the possibility that swinging the pigmentation state towards the extreme red blonde pigment side may not be the very best that we can do because maybe there is some chemical instability caused by those pigments themselves. And so I think there will be opportunities to do research further and, and maybe even improve the risks of melanoma in those non-sun exposed portions of the skin.
0: Do we think uh, reactive oxygen species play a role, like when the UV ray hits uh, the keratinocyte and then um, impacts the pigment cells, melanin cells. Is that like due to a reaction with the with reactive oxygen species that like can actually cause like a domino effect essentially in your
1: whole body? So um, yes, there is there is good evidence that the the damage which the red blonde pigment is contributing to mutation formation is probably occurring through the production of reactive oxygen, chemical intermediates, I don't think they're going throughout the body. I think they're <laughs> actually very restricted. They don't, these are not chemically long lived. They're very chemically short lived. So I think they're probably injuring the cell right where this occurs. I think they're probably injuring, it's been possible to actually measure in the it's DNA. very localized. Extremely localized. And, and it is, unfortunately it's, it's dangerous Um, but on the other hand, at least it is confined to that portion of the skin. Um, It does also raise, though, the interesting idea that certain antioxidants, perhaps if they're carefully measured and and optimized, may be able to minimize that risk. And, And by the way, one of the best antioxidants in our skin is dark pigment. Dark pigment not only has an ability to shield UV, but it also has the ability to quench reactive oxygen species. And there is a, a fairly high likelihood that's that's much of the protection that it is providing in our skin is actually bathing our skin in a in a reactive oxygen sponge. So do you think we'll
0: see sunscreen that has one day contains antioxidant? I mean, you already see like cosmetic products that have antioxidant properties. Do you think that one day we'll see these sunscreens that say like this is an antioxidant protection?
1: You know, it's it's an area that has been looked at. I I wouldn't say in the cosmetic field, I'm not as expert in that, but I would say with regard to melanoma and with regard to other cancers, the the role of antioxidants for prevention or even treatment, if you can imagine, um, has actually been very checkered. It it has not been such a simple message. And um, there have even been instances where antioxidants worsened the outcomes. Um, you know, how, how could that be? because we, you know how, how can it be good to have more oxidative damage? Um, there are theoretical ways that having a lot of oxidative injury may promote inflammation and having inflammation may attract the immune system and maybe the immune system will kill those cells and you would have been protected if you just let that oxidative injury happen. Um, On the other hand, the antioxidant may have interfered with that. So there there are all sorts of hypotheses that need to be tested. Um, I would say that the the existing literature by and large in the experimental setting has not been so simple to say, let's jump on an antioxidant bandwagon. I think one should be very cautious about it and also recognize that our bodies are self-regulating. And when you provide a, a potential treatment Um, such as, let's say, an antioxidant or a pro-oxidant or a drug, very often our body compensates in a certain way. So perhaps if you take an antioxidant, the body's endogenous antioxidants will go down. And you may actually be left, for all we know, with even less antioxidant activity than you had at the outset. So this is just a hypothesis. I'm, I'm not saying we know that's the case, but these are the kinds of, of uh, feedback loops that occur in biology that we have to be really cautious about before jumping to a simple conclusion about what is really best for our health.
0: Because you don't want to shut down your own system. It's actually so funny. I was recently speaking um, to Dr. Gary Fisher from the uh, Department of Dermatology at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And we were talking about the aging process of our skin. And he, he was talking about the importance of antioxidants um, for aging to, to prevent wrinkles and aging. And he said that, yes, there's proven evidence that antioxidants can help um, decrease the wrinkles on our skin, but the amount of blueberries say, or changes in your diet that you would need to make is not even something that's realistic. You would need to eat like a million blueberries a day for it to even have an effect.
1: <laughs> yeah, So I think the, the, the dose response. And then you also have to worry about how different people may react differently because people's skin, there, there are few parts of our bodies that are more heterogeneous across the population than people's skin, as you know. and and particularly involving melanin. And pigmentation in in human skin is extremely polymorphic or diverse across populations, Um, probably in large evolved for sun protection based on geography where people were were living. And so it's it's, it's very dangerous to try to draw general conclusions um, without taking into account the variability in, in different populations of people.
0: So I have a question. You know, my understanding now that we've spoken about this is that red hair and light skinned individuals have, um, they have a high risk of or elevated risk of developing melanoma. But the thing that's confusing is it seems that they have a lower frequency of having nevi, but when they do have nevi, they're more likely to develop, to develop melanoma.
1: Yes. So there is a puzzle. Um, and I think you you did put your finger on, on, an, on a very interesting um, paradox, you might say, which is that as you look at the skin pigmentation status in people from the darkest to the lightest, um, one of the features that often goes with lighter and lighter skin pigmentation is more and more nevi, more and more moles, um, which correlates with worsened tanning, better burning capacity, higher burning capacity, and higher and higher risk of developing melanoma. But the, the mole density, the number of moles as you go from darker to lighter, which gets higher and higher, suddenly drops off in the red hair lightest variant of, of, of normal skin pigmentation. Um, and what is actually going on there? And And I... Can tell you that this has actually been an area of research in my own laboratory, where we've been studying this quite intently, um, and um, and we we have a hypothesis that um, that actually in red-haired individuals they may perhaps have the highest number of of nevi of any, but maybe they're just not containing dark pigment and we therefore don't mm. see them, and uh, we we have coined the term invisible nevi, and um, we have generated models in mice with genetic engineering and fluorescent tags and things like that, which um, we think will allow us to examine this very quantitatively and try to understand if if there's something going on. Because you are absolutely right. We we like to follow nevi. We like to follow pigmented lesions very carefully to be sure they're not changing. It is important to remember that actually um, a a minority of melanomas are thought to arise from pre-existing nevi. I mean, a a healthy minority, 40%, 30, 40%, something like that. Um, But in fact, a a significant number of melanomas, if you look under the microscope, you don't see a nevus next to it, Uh, 30, 40% of the time you do. So on one hand, we monitor NEVI carefully in case they are transforming into melanoma. If the the spot is changing, of course, we want to know that very early. But on the other hand, we can't be certain that melanoma will come from a pre-existing nevus.
0: Okay. So, you know, it seems that melanin really serves its purpose as being protective for us. How, uh, well, protective against melanoma. How do we change pigment in the skin so that we can use this to our advantage? And theoretically, I mean, this is, seems very far out, but it, do you think theoretically we could give topical melanin to prevent melanoma?
1: Yeah. So um, I'll answer your first, your second question first. So the, the second question is, could you take melanin? Could you purify it from some source and, um, and then use that as a sunscreen or put it into a, a sunscreen as, a, as an ingredient? So people have actually tried that and they've tested the SPF, you know, the sun protection factor for melanin as compared to, you know, your favorite, you know, sunscreen that you buy in the, you know, the corner of drugstore. Um, and, um, you know, we, we know SPF of 15 or 30 is a, is a good healthy, you know, 15-fold or 30-fold relative protection um, before one would start to see sun burning, the very specific criteria defining the SPF. The SPF of pure dark melanin placed on on somebody's skin is low single digits. It's probably in the range of five or something like that. It's actually unbelievably weak. And um, this too has been a bit of an enigma. Why would that be? Especially when people who have dark pigment in their skin clearly have hundreds to thousands fold lower risk of developing melanoma as well as non-melanoma skin cancer. So what is it that's wrong? I mean, how are we measuring this wrong? And I think one of the attractive potential explanations for this is that when we put the melanin on top of our skin, the way you would put sunscreen onto your skin, you're not putting it where all the injury is happening. Mm -hmm. So you're putting it in a perfect place to protect it from UV radiation coming from sunlight. But what if that melanin is actually also an antioxidant and it's supposed to be protecting from the short-lived oxygen radicals that are made by red blonde pigment. And those are deep down in the melanocytes and they're coming very quick like little darts and then they're dissipating. Um, if your melanin is sitting way at the top of the skin and this is being made deep, at, you know, further deep into the skin, it's not producing that antioxidant activity, that quenching activity. Um, And so that that is actually a a hypothesis that that I think is a a very plausible reason why it's not only a UV protective mechanism that dark pigment provides, but also that this antioxidant activity is 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 quite important. Um, The first part of your question was, could we imagine a scenario where we could actually darken the skin? Um, Well, of course, there is a scenario where the skin can become dark and that's called tanning. That's thats UV-induced tanning. We think that's a really bad idea. We don't recommend that people darken their skin by the use of ultraviolet radiation because you're using a carcinogen, UV, the most common environmental carcinogen, in order to darken your skin. We don't think that's good cosmetically, and we don't think it's good medically with actually a few exceptions. Phototherapy, which is actually sometimes used in the dermatology context, for anti-inflammatory activities, not for the production of pigment. Um, maybe in the case of vitiligo, it is both anti-inflammatory mm-hmm. and to produce pigment, but that's a, a very specialized circumstance. Um, and very controlled, so it's very different. Very controlled yeah. you know, under the guidance of a physician, and very, very specific wavelengths of UV, that sort of thing, correct. Um, the concept of small molecules, drug-like molecules, or even cosmetic molecules that might stimulate melanocytes in the absence of UV radiation to make dark pigment is a is a very interesting idea that a number of laboratories have been working on. And I, I will disclose that I have worked on that as well. And I've even been involved uh, in in a small biotech company that is trying very hard to see if this kind of an a, 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 an activity of small molecules on the skin could simulate dark pigment, and and I do want to disclose openly that this is an area we've actually been working on very carefully. Um, at this point, it it doesn't exist in 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 any form that is available for people, and you know I, I think it's a very attractive concept, in my view, both for the protection that it can offer and also, that is to say, hopefully against UV radiation if it were to work. If one could mimic dark skin by stimulating the production of pigment in a person who otherwise has light skin, maybe that protection from UV radiation and skin cancer could be conferred as well. That would be wonderful. And the second reason I think it would be very exciting is that it might dissuade people from going into the sun. And, you know, using indoor tanning or or even outdoor tanning uh, and exposing themselves to more UV radiation, which we know is such an important contributor to skin cancer. So I think if it were to be effective, if it were to be safe, all of which would need to be demonstrated, and it's not in hand yet. Um, I think all of those um, potential benefits for the most common cancers that we have around here and certainly here in, in the United States um, could really have an impact. But again, it's still very much in the research arena.
0: So you mentioned tanning beds. Um, I understand you've done some research on the behavioral component behind tanning beds and how it very much is an addiction, and actually stimulates endorphins synthesis, which is going to surprise many people. Can you share um, the science behind that and the sun-seeking behavior behind it?
1: Yeah. So a number of years ago, we were studying the the biochemical pathway that connects ultraviolet radiation to melanin synthesis. In other words, how is it that tanning occurs? It literally, what is it after UV hits the skin that triggers the various steps ultimately producing dark melanin? And I will spare you all the gory detail of of the biochemistry of that, but we noticed that a byproduct, literally a byproduct of that very pathway was beta endorphin, the the opiate-like endogenous endorphin that our body makes that is an an, an opiate molecule um, that essentially has to be made for the pigment pathway to occur. And we actually had worked on the pigment pathway for quite a few years, and I had a a very talented MD-PhD student who was working in in my lab looking for a brand new project for her thesis, and um, and I said, you know, we haven't worked on this before, but it seems to me that there should be a lot of endorphin happening in the skin. Uh, it's not part of pigmentation. It's not, we didn't think it had any relationship to melanoma, probably, you know, it's just a, a funny coincidental byproduct. but maybe there would be a behavioral component of this. Maybe we can study that. And so um, Gilly Fell, Dr. now she's a physician, Dr. Fell um, studied this a number of years ago and discovered that in, even in mice, which are furry nocturnal animals, you know, where you wouldn't expect these kinds of pathways to exist, not only were they producing endorphin, but the endorphin, just from low-level UV exposure on their skin, was enough to accumulate in the skin, accumulate in the blood, and even cause behavioral changes in their brain, such that if you measured their ability to sense light touch, for example, there are all these ways that you can measure sensory perception in a mouse, they were becoming numb wow. from UV exposure. And if you gave naloxone, which is an anti-opiate drug, their sensation instantly was reversed, it became normal, and they started having withdrawal symptoms. I mean, literally they started having shaking symptoms as though it was a it's like a, a drug. Who- like a, like, an, like a heroin addict or some, you know, that, that type Literal, of. Withdrawal, wow. And it was only from UV radiation, low-dose UV radiation. Um, and and this, so this was published now six or seven years ago, um, and, and of course fit a lot of the behavioral data that had been captured over the years for people who had been using tanning beds for people who essentially had a a desire, or or I would even say a need to be in the sun, there were, there are people, it had been shown, who essentially were self-medicating from depression to addiction by being in either sunlight or tanning beds. And, And when they were abruptly stopping that behavior, Um, Could be seen to exhibit similar types of withdrawal kinds of symptoms, psychiatric criteria that satisfy the diagnosis of an addictive disorder. Um, And so we proposed this we could have, we had mice where there was a knockout of the endorphin gene. Those mice received as much UV as they want. They never had those symptoms. So they were, you know, it was very clean genetics, like you can do in an animal experiment like that. Um, And then more recently, just this past year, we published a paper that I think was, was, you know, to me very interesting and, and potentially a valuable clue to why would we have a pathway that leads us to become addicted to the most common carcinogen in our environment? I mean, that does not- That's seem like harmful that's, and- that's, that's a bad design, you might right. Say. Why in the world would people be- the, Are there protective day? benefits to this? So there has to be a benefit. So when you see that, um, there is almost always an evolutionary driver is the term that, that evolutionary biologists use to explain why something that is so clearly deleterious has nonetheless um, occurred and remained through evolution all the way you know, to human, but also involving many spe- many other species as well. And what would the likely evolutionary driver be? What would the explanation be for why humans are UV-seeking? And the answer we proposed to ourselves, and then I think eventually came about as close to proving as, as perhaps as possible, is vitamin D. Because vitamin D is mm. maybe the only good thing about UV radiation. Um, But even there, it's not really good because we can get vitamin D without UV as well. Um, So as a very brief review, there is one step in the synthesis of vitamin D in our bodies that we have no capability of carrying out. Vitamin D is a complicated molecule that has all these carbon bonds, but there is one carbon-carbon bond that needs to be cut in order to make the mature vitamin D molecules and we have no enzyme capable of doing that. Mm. But UV, specifically the UVB portion of the spectrum, perfectly fits and cuts that carbon-carbon bond. And for that reason, in evolution, having sufficient sunlight correlated with pigmentation. This is, I I would say broadly, we, we did not discover this, this has been broadly accepted for many years. Darkly pigmented people evolved to live in locations where sunlight was very dense, very heavy near the equator, those types of locations, um, because there was still enough UV that got through that they were not vitamin D deficient. But as populations migrated to Scandinavia, high latitude locations with much weaker UV exposure, having lighter skin probably was the only way that they would not die of vitamin D deficiency. Vitamin D deficiency is lethal and um, and the absence is lethal in childhood. So pre-reproductive years, um, there will be a very strong evolutionary selection for this. And the way that we kind of justified the explanation of this of, of, of this evolutionary driver is that we actually found that vitamin D represses opiate signaling. What this means, the way we couch it a little more simply. Is that if you were vitamin D, and and our studies were all in in mice, in animals, but we actually had human correlative data as well. That if you were vitamin D deficient and you had exposure to UV or exposure to endorphin, you would feel a bigger rush, you would feel a more a, a, a greater inclination to benefit from that opiate response. You will be attracted, you will feel good in the sun. But once it has generated vitamin D and your vitamin D level has now normalized. Now the opiate response is very weak. It doesn't work that much anymore. And so that reflects what we call a feedback loop. When vitamin D is present, you don't feel such a big rush. You don't need it anymore. You don't feel the inclination. Unfortunately, most of us live on the low end of the vitamin D spectrum because we don't go outside very much. We're staying indoors like you and I are right now. Um, Or we're not taking vitamin D supplements, which is what we really recommend. Get your vitamin D without the carcinogen. That's a much healthier way. Um, But this feedback loop probably helps explain how we evolved to have a UV-seeking pathway. And it also has a, a fairly important implication potentially for opiate addicts, because if you are addicted, let's say to heroin, um, you have fed into this very same loop. And if you are also vitamin D deficient, your body is craving more and more and more. Ultimately, it's craving vitamin D. Evolution wanted the vitamin D to repress that opiate rush. but not that many opiate addicts are out there exercising and getting a lot of sunlight and elevating their vitamin D level or taking vitamin D supplements. Therefore, they're in this futile cycle of giving more opiate, having the addiction response, but never replenishing the vitamin D that would turn this pathway off. And so we think there could be a future opportunity to actually ask whether vitamin D supplementation might even impact on on the opiate addiction problem. and And I think that would need to be studied in clinical trials. But um, it's interesting, we think that dermatology has that kind of a reach where you know even in fields that you might not imagine are very much related to it, um, it is actually quite plausible, we think, that that some of this, even things like opiate, the opiate addiction problem that we're living through right now may be a remnant of of this evolutionary pathway between the relationship of UV and our skin.
0: So fascinating. It's like, I, it's shocking. Um, do we think that this same concept applies to other people who have addictive behaviors, not specific to opiate use, but other, you know, there's many pe- people out there who have addictive behaviors or are just focused on one thing. Do you, we think the same applies?
1: Yeah, this is, this is a really great question. So we started to look at that And we had a little bit of evidence supporting alcohol in in laboratory animals as well, that vitamin D deficiency seemed potentially to be exacerbating the addictive likelihood for alcohol as well. Um, I I think what you're getting at is is a really interesting question is, could this have been a place during evolution where addiction, that is to say a behavioral inclination for something that sort of won't let go, it will reinforce and reinforce, Um, it might have saved um, vitamin D levels that otherwise, if deficient, were fatal. So this could have been a place where an addictive behavior was actually life-saving, but it does not intrinsically have to be restricted to opiates. It could, in fact, relate to other forms of other behaviors. And so I I think it is actually a very plausible question that there may be other addictions that might also be subject to this kind of a feedback loop from vitamin D. And I think that's worthy of of future research.
0: It's really amazing. Um, You know, I guess it would be amazing if we could take placebo vitamin D pills, give that to opiate patients and to see if it changes
1: their behavior. Yeah, so, I mean, that experiment, We did that in mice and and we could see those were, you know, all vehicle controlled studies and and in animals, we saw that. And I would also mention in the mice, one concern that, that we had was, would it be reversible? You know, sometimes you reach a point and it cannot be reversible, but in the mice, it was. So they had been vitamin D deficient. They had this terrible addictive propensity. But in fact, when we then later corrected the vitamin D deficiency, it reversed. So that's a a small note of optimism that there may be opportunities to go back and and reset the the calibration um, and and be able to return to normal.
0: And the other thing that's interesting is it's, you know, it's easy to become vitamin D deficient, but it's because I guess the feedback loop, it's very hard to be, to overdose on vitamin D. Um, You never hear of someone having like, or you rarely hear other than maybe having um, some condition, Um, you rarely hear of someone having elevated, persistently elevated vitamin D um, and dangerous levels. So I just wonder if that's part of this feedback loop and plays a role in it.
1: Yeah, I think that is a separate, um, I think that's more of an endocrine feedback loop that also exists because vitamin D then is you know, is occupied by its receptor and there are a number of different organs in the body that are participating in the metabolism of vitamin D. So I, I do think it is feedback, but it's a slightly different feedback loop than, than the endorphin loop that, that I was just talking about. Yeah. Very interesting.
0: So I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, and I would love to talk about some of your research on what is the SIK pathway that's S I K sick pathway, and how does it relate to the development of melanoma?
1: So the, the SICK pathway, <coughs> SICK stands for salt inducible kinase, S-I-K, um, has not really been looked at in the melanoma um, pathway per se, but more in relation to how melanin synthesis is regulated. Um, and, uh, and, and this is a, a family of enzymes, there are three of them, SICK 1, 2, and 3, which appear to be activated when the tanning response occurs. Um, So when your skin is subjected to UV radiation, the keratinocytes send a signal to melanocytes and the melanocytes send a signal inside the cell, which leads to regulation of the sick kinases. And downstream of those, a transcription factor gets turned on and then it activates expression of all the pigment enzymes and the pigment enzymes convert the amino acid tyrosine into melanin. So it's a long complicated pathway. The sick kinases have um, become of of some interest in the melanocyte and pigment field because as kinases, they are what we call druggable, meaning that there are small molecules that can fit into the enzyme and block the activity of the enzyme. And in the case of the sick enzymes, if they are blocked, that tends to correlate with more dark pigment production. So the, the the strategy of developing inhibitors of sick kinases to darken one's skin with a topical administration of these sick kinase inhibitors is one of the areas that is under research investigation to see if that might be a way of darkening human skin. Okay.
0: Can we talk a little bit about CRISPR? You know, there's a lot of talk about CRISPR.
1: What is the role it plays in melanoma? So CRISPR is a is a technology. It's, um, it's not something that our cells can do on their own. It's a it's a technology that has been borrowed from the microbiology field and, uh, and exported out. It is essentially a gene editing t- technology in which we can um, we can take any type of cell in the laboratory and introduce a set of uh, an, an enzyme, the CRISPR enzyme, as well as um, guides, guide RNAs that will um, essentially recruit this enzyme to a very specific area in the genome. Out of the 3 billion nucleotides in our genome, it will, it will dock it right down to a very specific site where the CRISPR enzyme will carry out a chemistry that will alter an, a, a nucleotide. And, and with the idea of constructing tailored mutations or tailored changes in the genome of a cell. Um, I'm not aware of of strategies of using CRISPR in the case of melanoma. There are many strategies to use CRISPR to correct genetic abnormalities. Mm -hmm. So if if an individual has a mutation in certain of their cells and you could introduce CRISPR and the right guides and try to construct a corrected version so that the mutation is corrected back to the normal sequence, Um, that might be a strategy for correcting genetic uh, abnormalities. Um, And CRISPR is also used experimentally in in a lot of research to try to identify genes that are playing important roles in survival pathways, drug sensitivity pathways, resistance pathways, and things like that. So I would say CRISPR, with regard to melanoma, is a very important tool. We use it a great deal in my lab and in, in many, many labs to try and get at the molecular basis of the disease. I don't think, however, at at this point, that CRISPR is part of a therapeutic approach directly. It's not part of a drug treatment, for example, for melanoma.
0: Okay, before we wrap up, Dr. Fisher, I wanna ask you what clinical advances do you expect for the future of melanoma? You're clearly working on some really fascinating, groundbreaking research.
1: What is your expectation and where do you see the future? So I would separate it into two broad areas. One is the treatment of advanced melanoma. Um, If you think about the disease as of today, um, melanoma is usually diagnosed as a spot on somebody's skin. Um, In its early phases, when it is on the skin, roughly six out of seven times, it will be cured just by cutting it off. You catch it early enough, you remove it, finished. In the instances where it either presented originally having already spread, or even after removing it just from the skin, it recurs and spreads to another part of the body, metastatic melanoma, which is more advanced. That is the instance, that setting where melanoma is life-threatening and and has been life-threatening for many years. Over the last 10 years or so, there has been a massive revolution in progress for the treatment of advanced melanoma, which has gone from being a very rare cure. 15 plus years ago, it was very, very rare for a patient who had metastatic advanced melanoma to survive for for an extended period of time because the disease, as I mentioned for melanocytes on our skin that are battered by UV radiation, the disease was resistant to almost every treatment, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and so on. What has happened is that immunotherapy has produced very major responses that are, in many cases, durable. And this is now between a third and a half of patients with metastatic melanoma are seeing long-term disease-free stable stable control of their melanoma, which we like to call a cure, a very simple way to describe it. Um, and, And probably one of the most important explanations of this is those very same mutations that gave rise to the disease have given rise to many other altered proteins, these we call them neo-antigens, mutated protein, because that whole genome is pocked full of mutations caused by UV radiation. And this can make the immune system look at the cell and say, this doesn't look like a normal cell. There are all these mutations in here. Maybe this is like a virus or a fungus or a bacterium. Let's kill it. Um, Well, if it were that simple, there wouldn't be any such thing as melanoma. So it's not that simple. Actually, the melanoma fights against the immune system and tries to tell the immune system, no, 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 no. You have to tolerate me because I'm part of your same body where I am self. Breaking that tolerance has been the big breakthrough in the therapy of advanced melanoma. And what are called immune checkpoint inhibitors have been the the drugs that have have produced this enormous effect. Um, But it is in fact that signal where the melanoma cell communicates to the immune cells around it and says don't kill me i'm i'm one of you
0: you're basically um, saying how how you're answering the question how does the immune system recognize melanoma
1: cells yes that is right so it's yep. in, in in several ways one all these mutations that have accumulated from u v radiation and two that the success of the immune system in killing the melanoma cells has required blocking the ability of the melanoma cell to arrest the immune system through these checkpoints, which is, which is a very normal uh, way that our body prevents autoimmunity. It, it prevents our immune system from attacking any of our normal cells. The melanoma cell tries that trick um, and until recently succeeded. But now with these drugs, we can prevent the melanoma cell from pushing down the immune system. And so this has been great, but it's not been enough. There's still roughly half of melanoma patients where even in, in the advanced disease, we're not seeing enough benefits. So I think in that domain, there is huge, huge effort to find new drugs to further enhance the immune response, to further impede the checkpoint pathway, and build on this. And there, there is constant progress. I, you know, the we don't know if the next step will be another 30% improvement, 50% improvement or maybe only 5% improvement, but there is reason to be optimistic that we are relentlessly moving towards better and better progress. And I would point out that I think melanoma has been the poster child of immunotherapy for all of human cancer. And we can clearly see uh, the adaptation of these very same treatments for lung cancer, bladder cancer, kidney cancer, almost every form of cancer now, not with quite the same magnitude of efficacy as we see in melanoma but melanoma has kind of led the way as, as, a, as the example that, that worked the, probably to the greatest extent and for which we understand the mechanism the most. Mm-hmm. The other branch of melanoma that and I- just, ha- I want to
0: ask you on that topic, you, you know, I'm, I was listening to you speak and um, in previous lectures, and you mentioned that some patients develop vitiligo from immune checkpoint inhibitors. Why is that happening in some patients and not in other patients? Is it specific to a gene that, that those patients carry? What is that about
1: it, that patient? I'm sorry, so you're saying for vitiligo in general or vitiligo during therapy? Vitiligo during therapy. Yeah, so the vitiligo that occurs during immune therapy for melanoma is essentially a marker that the immune system is successfully attacking the melanoma and Um, And it is essentially evidence of immune attack against melanocytes. Um, There's more to it. There's a lot of nuance. It turns out not any old part of the body will experience the vitiligo. Typically, it's in areas where there was previous sun damage, mm. the magnitude, the location, and so on. There, there's a lot of nuance, I think, to that. But in general, what I think the broad thinking is that we are seeing evidence that the immune system has been activated, and it has the selectivity of recognizing melanocyte targets. And that's why it is a good sign. It correlates with a good prognosis. It, it implies- is it reversible vitiligo? Yeah. Um, you know, I think sometimes it can be, and sometimes it may not be. Um, I don't think melanoma patients with stage four advanced melanoma will mind. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, they would be much happier having white spots someplace than obviously having melanoma that is not being controlled. Um, but it is a manifestation of the same form of immune attack against mm-hmm. the malignant cell, but also some of the normal cells. Okay. Yeah. Um, The the last thing I would just mention was the the other domain where I think we can afford to see much more progress, and I hope we will see it, is in the domain of prevention, because there are very few human cancers where we can point our finger and say, we know what caused this. Um, You know, with cigarettes and lung cancer, we have a pretty good idea what causes this. Unfortunately, not all of lung cancer. There's a big group that's independent of, of cigarettes. But in the case of melanoma, we do know there is a role of pigment, but we also know there's a huge role of UV radiation. We also know now that there's a behavioral component that is very, very difficult to fight against. It's, it's literally fighting against evolution, um, fighting against behavioral inclinations. Um, but on the other hand, it ought to be incredibly preventable. And I think um, over the coming years, the, the hope would be that we have new strategies beyond the best attempts we've had with sunscreens, better sunscreens, better components, perhaps things that would modify pigment or behaviors or education to try to really have impact on the formation of melanoma at the very outset. It sounds like the role of epigenetics in melanoma really plays a role as well. Yes, we we think so. I mean, epigenetics is, is the programming of our genome um, that involves what genes are being expressed and, and, to a large extent, variability from person to person. So, um, undoubtedly, there is a, there's a very big significant component that's, that's epigenetic. And even in, when we think of people with lighter skin or darker skin, those melanocytes probably have epigenetic differences between them that may correlate with different vulnerability and perhaps even different therapeutic opportunities down the line.
0: So you think it has a role in the targeted therapies as well?
1: Yes. Yes. And there's a a lot of research in that area.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fisher. I really enjoyed speaking to you today. Such a fascinating conversation. I could go on and talk to you for hours and hours about your research. I thank you for your time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Derm Club podcast. If you found the discussion today to be valuable, please subscribe and share. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode as we continue to delve into dermatology and skincare with the world experts.